0: Plundergrounds 111, B movies and lots of call ins.
1: Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go.
0: Fantasy and Dungeon Delve, science fiction, watch yourselves.
2: Hi,
0: everybody. It seems like it has been a while since I have podcasted. I'm sure that's not true. It's probably only been about a week, but I've been traveling and kind of at a creative low point in a good way. Like there are times when you feel like you need to create and create and create. and You got ideas just stumbling over themselves to get out. And there are other times when you just want to be a sponge and soak things up. And that's where I'm at right now. I have been absorbing all kinds of cool things um, in reading and movies and whatnot, and just letting them brew inside my head and bump into each other and mix with each other and hopefully they 'll come out in some cool form at some point, but for now i 'm just enjoying soaking them all up and part of this is driven by um, rediscovering my love of movies. you know you go through cycles and i haven 't really been in the mood to watch much TV or movies for quite a while and uh, part of it is that Angus and I have been going to the movies occasionally this summer, and I've just seen some amazing movies uh, We uh, with him. We saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I thought was great. Um, we saw The Joker, not, um, not as a superhero movie, like whatever, but as a, a sociological, mythical kind of movie. I thought it was amazing. Um, Jojo Rabbit, which was probably the best of the bunch. So cool. So good humorous, um, hilarious, actually, uh, dark, poignant, sweet. I don't know. It's it's just one of those almost perfect movies. So good. Um, if you don't know the, uh, the premise, it's about a kid who's in the Hitler youth and he has an imaginary friend who is Adolf Hitler and (laughs) it sounds horrible, doesn't it? But it's, I don't know. It's such a great story, very affirming and, um, you know, has its sad moments, but, Great acting. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just, there's so many things I could say, but some of them would be spoilery and I don't want to do that. So, yeah, go see that, please. Um, and then uh, Angus and I saw a couple throwback movies in the theaters as well. We saw The Birds in the middle of Hitchcocktober. And this Saturday morning, we saw The Dark Crystal. And what an amazing bit of world building that movie is. I hadn't seen it in the theater. Well, I hadn't seen it actually at all since I saw it as a kid. As a young man, and uh, it made such an impression on me that I pretty much just remembered the movie. It was like very few things that i didn 't remember as I was watching it again, and uh, now i 'm all primed to go back and watch the prequels on netflix and even though those come chronolog- chronologically before the movie, my understanding it 's better to watch the movie first to kind of get the the, the world in your head. Uh, because the, the series relies fairly heavily on making references to some things that uh, probably best to see the movie first. Well, so we had seen all those great movies in the theaters, and that kind of got me on a spree of uh, that and my, my desire to write a little game called Uh, Bad Science, which I've talked about on the podcast before about atomic horror movies, and um, that got me in the mood to watch some B-movies at home on Amazon Prime, and mostly B-movies in the sense that I started off wanting to watch monster movies, but then, um, you know, you can't get everything in the world on Amazon Prime, so I just kind of would pick from what was there, right? Uh, So I'd watch a movie and then kind of go to the bottom of the screen and and dig through uh, other movies that were related or suggested, or I would take some suggestions from Jason from the Nerd RPG Variety Podcast. Uh, when I was talking about horror movies with him. So I'm not going to talk about all the movies I watched, and in fact, I'm only going to talk about one in depth. But um, all I did watch the Gojira 1954. If you've never seen the original Godzilla, the one before um, the American release, which cut in Raymond Burr, film uh, and, and uh, you know, dubbed it over in English and rewrote some of the bits. Um, Gojira is an amazing film. It takes a lot from Ray, Harryhausen's uh, Beast from 40,000 Fathoms in the sense that it's, a, you know, a monster woken up from prehistoric slumber, if you will, by atomic bombs. But, you know, that film, that premise just has more weight when it's made by Japanese people in 1954, um, people who have recently suffered from being bombed by an atomic bomb, it's 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 just heavier and more interesting and more nuanced than the American monster movie. So you know, Kojira. I mean, not that Beast from Forty Thousand Fathoms isn't good, but it's just not. It's not even in the same class, I don't think. It's Gojira and uh, great music, um, really memorable bits of special effects, just um, really neat. So worth watching. Um, All right, so here are the ones that I watched on Amazon Prime that I would recommend. Uh, Attack of the Giant Crabs, which I'm going to talk about in depth. I love that movie. Uh, Lady Frankenstein, I'll give you quick pitches for these others. Lady Frankenstein is uh, the daughter of Victor Frankenstein, and she is all in on the idea of experimenting on human corpses. And in fact, she has a particular project in mind that involves a, an elderly assistant of her father that she admires intellectually, and a handsome young man um, who works about the castle who has some mental challenges. And she thinks to herself, basically, why can't I have the best of both? And that's where the film goes. Yes, it does. (laughs) Um, The Day of the Triffids. This movie was surprisingly good. I have read this book a number of times and I enjoy it. Uh, The book is a cozy catastrophe in that uh, it is a post-apocalyptic novel, but it's kind of about the human spirit and ingenuity uh, trying to rebuild some semblance of of society or civilization in the wake of um, a disaster that ends the world as we know it. And then uh, the BBC radio play, which is really spooky. I think that one's somehow really scary, whereas the book is a little bit more just interesting. Um, that's great to listen to. I think it was a series of about six six radio dramas that did on the BBC. Uh, the movie is quite good too. I don't think it really is as good as the movie, as the book or the radio play. But it's quite good in its own right, and it's pretty accurate. It's it's It captures the spirit enough that I was happy with it. The one change they made I did not like was that, um, if you don't know what a triffid is, it's a tall ambulatory plant. So it's a plant that moves very slowly, and it's got a big stinger on it. And uh, the reason they exist in the book is that Um, They have been genetically created with uh, or, or, you know, horticulturally created uh, artificially to be producers of oil. They make a very fine oil that's used to replace fossil fuels. And so that's why there's so many of them. And they have uh, ranches or farms of these triffids um, at the beginning of the book. Well, in the movie... They come with an asteroid shower, and uh, the asteroid or meteor shower at the beginning of the, uh, the story is also an important part of that. Uh, do I want to give any of that away? Mm, I don't think I do. Um, worth watching, though. Cool. Cool. Uh, It's absolutely worth reading and absolutely worth listening to the BBC radio play. If you like vintage radio drama, start there. So good. All right. um, And then I watched uh, Scream and Scream Again, which uh, was in honor of Pete Jones since he made a game called Scream and Scream Again for Anchorites Appreciate Arneson Month. And uh, it was a horror game. And the name refers to this movie, but there's no other real tie between the two. Um, The movie is... um, well, what would I say about this one? It's, it's kind of cheesy, but in a good way, and it's got um, Christopher Lee in it. It's got Vincent Price in it, and for about 30 seconds, it has Peter Cushing in it. <laughs> uh, it, it feels like, I think the best thing about this movie in my mind was this, the way it was told as a story. It feels like two very different movies that are on a collision course. And at the very beginning of the of the movie you 're seeing these scenes that don 't seem to relate at all, and you 're thinking how many different things are going on here, and is there any relationship to them at all um, i thought I thought in the end it was I actually for a while thought it was going to be a gimmick where they actually did have two completely different movies that were intercut, but they they do converge, and so you can have fun guessing how they 're going to come together um, and I watched uh, nothing but the night which uh, it was a manhunt style movie that goes to an occult supernatural place surprisingly at the end and has a, a really neat ending um, that's all I want to say about that one because it's a little too well I'll to give you the premise of what starts it what starts the manhunt is that there's a group of elderly people who um, have a trust uh, that's got a ton of money in it and they run an orphanage and they are getting murdered one by one in strange ways and um, one of the, there's a particular focus of interest in one of the young girls that's at the uh, orphanage and you you can kind of put it together from there. I don't know. I don't want to say any more about it, but that's just how it gets started. Okay. But what I really want to talk about is Attack of the Giant Crabs. Um, As a B-movie, this one is a classic. It's made by Roger Corman, who is a a giant of the B movie industry, um, often doing things with almost no money, <laughs> and uh, Attack of the Giant Crabs is one of his best, I think, works. It's it was made to be shown back to back with another movie, so it's short. It's an hour and three minutes long, which means that it had to be a very tight bit of storytelling, and it is it manages to accomplish a lot in that hour and three minutes, and. Uh, It's a cool premise with neat monsters, and uh, I'm just going to spill everything, so if you don't like spoilers, you can skip to the call-ins part of this show, but I think as an RPG scenario, this one has a lot of promise, so... It happens on an island, and the middle of the island is a research station, and the research station has gone out of contact. The the people there have seemingly just disappeared. And so a new team comes out to see what happened, and they don't find any bodies, and it's a great mystery what happened to the people who were on the island before, the researchers that were on the island. And the only thing on this island seems to be seagulls and big land crabs, right? Um, dinner plate-sized crabs. Well... Uh, As it turns out, there's more around this island. There are um, other kinds of crabs, great, big, monstrous uh, crabs, bigger than horses that live in the water around the island and who tunnel or which tunnel under the island and cause it to collapse in places. And the best thing about these giant crab monsters is not only do they want to eat you, but once they have eaten you, they can absorb your brain matter in a way that allows them to talk as you, and they use that to lure other people out. So in the middle of the night, you know, you hear the voice. Help, I've I've fallen into into one of the tunnels and my legs broken. Bring a light, help me. Right? And then uh, <laughs> And then somebody gets up and goes out and uh, you know falls into the same hole and chomp 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 and 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 then the crab speaks in their voice and tries to lure somebody else out. So it's great. Um, these things are huge. They're hard to kill. Um, they're cheesy looking as monsters. The science is absolutely bad in it. So it's a perfect bit of inspiration for my for my game. But uh, you know, despite all of its flaws, or maybe. And maybe because all of its flaws, it's a great little movie. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I think you will, too, if you don't try to take it too seriously. If you just watch it for fun and um, think about, you know, what all you could do with it Uh, as a role-playing game. I actually thought about, I love vintage radio drama. And I was thinking, this would make a great little vintage radio drama because there's a a lot done with sound in it. And, uh, yeah, I I think it's impressive what Roger Corman pulled off in an hour and three minutes in this film with uh, with very little money. So, that's my little round of B movies. I know I've talked about movies before and I think it's maybe not the best audio in the world to hear somebody talking about a movie unless you've also seen it. So, I won't go on too much longer, but I do think that there is um, maybe I've said this, and maybe I haven't already said this, but there is a value to B movies, and that value comes from the fact that because of the uh, the low budget, the director has to get very creative. And I think a really good B movie it has more meat on the bone than a than an average um, you know, popular movie that you would go to see at the theater. So, uh, I would rather watch a good B movie on Amazon prime than I would to go see, you know, another, yet another Friday, the 13th style movie on the big screen. Right. And I think this sometimes happens also later in series. I was talking with a friend about this today, and he said the only Friday the 13th movie he ever saw was one of the later ones, and it had Jason in space, and apparently he ends up on some kind of holodeck-style thing, and uh, he's killing people in the holodeck, but they won't stay dead because they're just virtual people, and it confuses him. And (laughs) I thought that was hilarious. Uh, You know, this is where you have to go when you've used up all the ideas that started the franchise, and you have to go to someplace else, it forces you to get creative and interesting. And uh, yeah, I think I'd rather see that one than I would the uh, you know typical uh campground massacre kind of thing. Well, that's all I want to say about the movies. Let's get to the call ins. Hey, this is time-traveling Ray from the future. To make a quick correction, it was Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, not 40. He didn't go quite as deep as I thought he did. And um, Pete Jones, I forgot to mention, does the Dragons Are Real podcast.
3: Hey, Ray. Something a little bit different for you, Being so I credit you with starting this AAA thing, and I know you didn't... Um, well, you're saying you didn't. about? <laughs> That's a good start. A uh, little bit of an unboxing. Don't know if you can hear this. Uh, it's come from Amazon. I always need a bit of advertising. Bust into the box. What it is? It is a light war game called Undaunted. It's uh, by Osprey Games. It's World War Two. Quick blurb. June 1944, through the D-Day landings, the Allies have seized a foothold on the beaches of Normandy. Now you must lead your troops as you push deeper into France and drive back the German forces. You'll face intense resistance, machine gun fire and mortar bombardment, but a great commander can turn even the bleakest situation to their advantage. Take charge amidst the chaos of battle, hold fast in the face of opposition and remain undaunted.
0: Great performance, Colin. You really made me want to buy that game. Undaunted. (laughs) I swear, if you read the back of a tube of grapefruit-flavored toothpaste, I would buy it. You'd make it sound good. <laughs> it makes me think, though, um, small or light war games is a really interesting space and one that I think has seen some development in recent years. I like to do some solo play, as you know, and I think solo wargaming is really interesting. These kind of games that come in pocket editions or with little foldable maps and such uh, are pretty fascinating. I played a Vikings game by Decision Games recently, uh, where you have four seasons and you have a Viking raider, uh, a clan of Viking raiders that you take out to try to, to gather treasure and pillage towns and things like that. So you have these, uh, you have weather and lost at sea and all these different results that can happen. And you tell a little story. Um, and for a time, you sort of imagine yourself in the shoes of a um, of a Viking, right? And uh, there was another one that I remember, and I'm not going to be able to find a link to this, so I'm not going to promise anything in the show notes. But I'll, I'll give it a try later. It came out right around Memorial Day, or I guess in England that would be uh, is it Remembrance Day. I think that's what it is. Um, you wear the poppies and remember uh, soldiers who have passed, and read Flanders Field or whatever you do. Um, <laughs> but this this uh, story, uh, this little uh, war game was it a story game? Was it a war game? I don't know. Um, it was it was a historically themed little solo game. Let's put it that way. A little paper and pencil and dice game about World War One, and it was focused on a micro event, like just getting your soldier from your trench over to the enemy trench. And it was uh, intended to be and was a kind of depressing little game because of the lethality of that type of warfare. But it was an interesting game to set and play uh, with yourself over you know, lunchtime on Remembrance Day, and to think about the lives that were lost and why they were lost, and what it must have felt like on some level to be the the persons called upon to do those you know fatalistic charges. And I I, I appreciate that about his, historic games, about war games, the ability to tell that story in a way. In a different way, right? To communicate that story to us in a way that's not out of the history books, but we actually kind of live it. And I guess this is how, once again, thinking about the tie between role-playing games and war games and how one grew out of the other, it's kind of obvious to me um, because there's always been this element of the imagination of... Putting yourself in the battlefield. And that's why miniatures were a thing. is to get the visuals right and, uh, you know, to make little houses and columns of smoke and um, uh, believable little rivers and, uh, you know, build yourself a sand table so you can make cool terrain and all that. It wasn't just about arts and crafts. It was, although I assume part of it was that, uh, you know, about the joy of painting things and whatnot. But I think it was really about getting... Uh, the visuals in uh, down in such a way that you could live that event for a time and uh, get into the character of your side if not uh, literally into the character of a particular general. So, But I think those are neat and I'd like to hear how that game played out for you and I'd like to hear about more little micro war games that perhaps I could download and play or pick up for you know less than 12 bucks let's say 12 to 15 bucks I, I thought that decision games one was pretty neat and i'll put a link to that one in the show notes for sure and if i can find the other one i'll, I'll link that one as well
4: hey ray jason here nerds rpg variety cast just listened to episode 104 where you introduced the gygax challenge i can't do it with you unfortunately i've got too much on my plate right now but i will pick it up when times clear up for me maybe in november um dad just too busy right now i haven't done any i haven't designed a world since high school not you know in this in depth because i only run one shots or short campaigns so i've never had to develop a world yeah well like say since high school of course all of us do it in high school right but so i'm interested in doing this i just can't do it with you but i i do look forward to doing it maybe in november so thank you for putting all this out there really appreciate it and i'm really enjoying hearing the process
0: Thanks for calling, Jason. I'm glad you're uh, enjoying those GIGAX 75 Challenge episodes. In fact, I just recorded the last of them with JJ last night. We're all done with our five weeks, and we recorded about the last three weeks all in one go. It took us about an hour and 40 minutes, so there's lots of material to come, and it's all good stuff. I think we were both amazed at how much we finished in that five weeks, and really, I think we both agreed that it's the most world-building we've done maybe ever. Right. Um, uh, And uh, well, I have so much to say about that, that I'll just leave it for that podcast. But it was a really good exercise. And I also learned a lot about the instructions that I made for the exercise and how to make those better. So in some ways, it's good that you didn't do it with us. I will be revising that book and putting it up soon with uh, better instructions. And I think I'll probably try to keep keep making it better as we go. But, you know, it's just a a way that you can help people be creative. And I'm interested in that. You know, what what can I do to help people? Um, generate something without channeling them in a way that's harmful and um, and giving them creative prompts that that uh, push them in interesting directions and some of the instructions worked out really well in that regard some didn't um, and you'll hear about uh, that when we talk about it on our podcast so yeah it was it was really a good time and watch for the updated version of that GIGAX 75 challenge work zine to come out.
2: Hello Ray, it's Evelyn. So I've tried Microscope a few times and I find uh, role-playing scenes really hard to role-play. It's like jumping cold into a scene uh, with new character each time. This feels a lot like uh, improv art and I don't know I it feels like improv art and role-playing game are Different things like they require a different kind of mindset or skill, or, or I don't know. It's it's not exactly the same. They are close to each others, but uh, I a lot of these game present improv like it's role playing, but there's maybe some subtle difference. And what do you think about that? Thank you.
0: Hey, Evelyn, it's good to hear from you. Uh, if you don't know, everyone, Evelyn is an artist who puts out really cool art through her Patreon. You can go support her for very little, a month. And all, not all the art that she puts out, but most of the art that she puts out through the Patreon is stuff that you can use in your own zines and adventures. And she always makes a point of telling you which ones you can use and which ones are for a project. But um, she's one of the artists that is... Pushing the genre in interesting directions on my mind, it's not just the same old fantasy art that you see. And so because she is putting out different stuff like that, it also gives you different ideas. It helps you be creative in directions that maybe you wouldn't be otherwise. So I, I really love what you do, Avalon. Thanks for calling in. And yes, I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to microscope, part of what's hard about it. For one thing, you're you're having to shift very quickly from this thousand foot view where you're making history, you know, all the way down to being uh, seeing a scene through the eyes of a character. So Something that I had noticed this time around, um, and I think is probably a better idea, is these kind of dictated scenes where you um, present it for other players like they would see it on a movie screen, as opposed to everybody very quickly drafting characters and then dropping into a character and then trying to play out a scene from inside of a character that they – well, one of the – let's just talk about the differences, I guess, between – uh, what happens in microscope as improv, which I think it is closer to improv, and what happens in a traditional RPG. One of the things that happens in an RPG is that you go through a character generation process, usually unless somebody hands you pregens. And if you go through a character generation process, or even if you just go through the process of learning the rules with a character sheet in hand, you get time to kind of process the character that you're going to get into and why um, their ability, you know, what their abilities are and why they matter and how they got the way uh, got to be the way they got to be and all that kind of matters. In fact, I think a lot of the value of the character generation process is that it takes place in uh, sequentially, you know, so that as you roll up stats, you learn, every time you roll a stat, for instance, you learn more about your character. Um, or when you assign stats, you make decisions about your character and all those add up to, like, getting into character. Well, a microscope doesn't really help you that way. You just drop right into character. <laughs> and the other thing about a role-playing game, um, one of the other things that's different is when you reach a point where you're not sure what happens, you Usually, events are decided by the roll of a die or draw of a card or some other randomizer, whereas in improv, um, there is no kind of randomization or GM directing the scene that says what happens. Um, improv, you feed off of each other, off uh, off of the story, right? And uh, the, the most important thing is well, I don't know, I'm not an improv player, so I shouldn't say the most important thing. I don't know what the imp- most important thing is, but you hear a lot about this idea of the yes and to build on each other's story to accept the offerings of other people and not to negate them or shut them down, but to um hear what they say and then go in that direction or go with it, and even then maybe amplify it right and give them something creative to work with and uh it's this not a one upsmanship, but it's this kind of you know if you get in the groove, then you can really feed off each other and build something interesting well microscope is a little bit in between those things you do have a gm but the gm can actually play a character so is it really much of a gm i don't know i think they're pretty ill-defined what a scene is there and it is very hard to drop into a scene and i think if there's ever like a really solid second edition of that game that's probably something that needs to be addressed is is the scene the way scenes play out having said that uh, when we ran our game, we played a scene, and it actually really helped inform the story. So it can work, and does work, even if it's awkward. And it was, in our case, kind of awkward, but we got through it, and it meant something. And so, yeah, I think I think that was a really good observation on your part to to kind of liken it to the difference between improv and role playing, because it is it's just kind of a different animal in microscope. Hey, Ray.
4: This is Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Just want to mention, I'm not as scared. I'll say it. I'll play AD&D First Edition any day of the week and twice on Sunday over Fifth Edition. So there you go. Anyhow, that's mostly because I grew up with AD&D and love it and love the writing. But the size is part of it. You know, I'm going to play in a, because I love Arlen Walker and I'm going to, and he offered to let me play in one of his games. I actually bought the Pathfinder 2 rulebook. The player's handbook is like 600-plus pages for the player's book. That's only one of the books. That's crazy. Astonishing Sourcemen and Sorcerers of Hyde is 600 pages for the whole game. That's nuts. Oh, well. I'll talk to you later, Ray. Great episode.
0: Yeah, man. That is nuts. <laughs> Six hundred and some pages? Come on! What's all those pages for? Uh, I mean, can you not hand a character sheet to somebody and teach them to play the game in a few minutes? Then, then what's all the what's all those pages for? They're just a distraction. Um, you're either going to be looking up rules in them at the table, which takes away from play time, or you're going to be sitting around in character generation, having an anti-social social event where everybody is together to role play, but instead they're looking in books to build characters. Um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> You know, I I like some of that stuff, too. Don't get me wrong. I play those games. Um, There are parts of that that I enjoy. I like to make fun of it a little bit in good spirit, I hope, because honestly, there's a million different role playing games out there and they're all built around the same chassis, you know, the same kind of basic components. And even though they feel quite different, they're all uh, very similar when you actually get into the play. And there's no point in making fun of each other's games I uh, but it is certainly true that uh, you can prefer some over the others I just I think that a lot of what page count comes down to is people trying to sell games people trying to sell material and um, you know making people feel like they need those books and I I uh, have gone the other way in my own personal journey in the hobby which is that I try to spend little money on rpgs um i'd end up buying a lot of rpgs so in the end i spend big money but i spend little money on each thing that i buy and often uh, gravitate towards free things or pay what you want things and find those to be for me every bit as engaging and interesting and fun as the the things made by big companies that cost big bucks but what you know what do i know i'm just one dude
1: Hey Ray, this is Larry Follow Me and Die. Just listened to your episode about uh, gods and iron. And a couple of quick, uh, I guess, facts about iron and bronze. Um, The big difference is bronze, you have to hammer it to sharpen it. Whereas with iron slash steel, you've got to use a stone to sharpen it. Um, And then iron, there's cold iron and hot iron. I did some research on that several years ago and cold iron is terrestrial iron and hot iron is meteoric iron and the reason why cold iron is used against demons and devils is because they're not of this world that's why it's effective against them so that may fit into your setting as well i've been enjoying your series on the gygax challenge keep it up hey ray that was a great episode on your setting i'm so excited for it As you were talking, I found myself thinking about everything from theology to mythology to folklore and literature, and I just really liked the stuff that you had to say about your law and chaos gods and the properties of steel. Very cool.
0: Thank you, Logan and Larry, for calling in. Logan was the second voice you heard there. He does the Incredible Swordbreaker zine and podcast. You also heard him at the top of the show singing my wonderful theme song that he created all by himself. And uh, then the first caller was... Well, first of all, thank you, Logan, for the kind words. I appreciate that. Uh, The first caller was Larry Hamilton, who does Follow Me and Die. I don't know. Was that a good imitation of you, Larry? Probably wasn't. Uh, (laughs) But that's a cool podcast, too. And Larry called in there with some ideas about iron, which is quite interesting. Uh, I have found that in doing my own research that a lot of lore about iron and bronze is a little bit apocryphal, not always borne out by facts. Uh, The early Iron Age is really quite interesting in that um, at least my impression is that iron isn't necessarily better than bronze for implement making, um, until you really learn how to forge it with carbon to make steel. Uh, but it is more ubiquitous. So it's a lot easier to find iron ore and that makes it, um, uh, much more desirable to learn how to make something you know good out of it than, than bronze just because, um, Uh, the availability factor, but also in the end, once you figure out how to work bronze, or how to work iron, excuse me, then you end up with a more durable thing that keeps a better edge, and you know, it's just a superior uh, piece of equipment. Well, in my world, uh, I like this idea that you put out there, Larry, about meteoric iron, Uh, and um, I hadn't run across that, but um, the idea that something from outer space is good against planar creatures is kind of cool. I'm kind of flipping that on its head a little bit. And Iron, in my campaign, I've just decided is basically anti-magic. So it is. Uh, it feels magical in its properties only in comparison to magic things, meaning uh, it is from the middle world. It's from Earth, the Earth of human beings, right? And it, And it's pulled from the ground, and it's a very heavy object, and it's very grounding. And if you wear armor made of iron it has uh it helps uh repel spells and magical effects um magical creatures do less damage against you it gives you a little bit of a shift advantage there um and you do a little bit more damage with iron weapons against magical creatures or creatures from the plains or from the outside the you know this middle earth and um what i mean by middle earth is you kind of think of earth as like this layer that's sandwiched between the um the sky gods or the the gods of the heavens and the mythical underworld you know hell or the uh you know the plane that comes underneath so if you get too far away from this core, um, where iron is found, then that's where you run into these creatures and the iron is, is kind of their bane. Well, uh, it also means then that bronze is the material that can be enchanted. So, uh, iron and magic don't mix. It's like oil and water. But, uh, if you find anything wondrous in the land that's magical, it's probably made with bronze or maybe silver or gold or something like that. Um, what else to say? Well, I, you know, It would be interesting, wouldn't it, if um, maybe as a campaign secret, somebody has figured out how to mix iron and magic. That would be quite the super weapon. Hmm, that's a neat thought. Uh, But at its base, it's going to feel like it's, you know, just it would take something really interesting to get those to mix. uh, Some kind of great sacrifice, perhaps. Or, uh, yeah, you got me thinking. You got me thinking. Thank you for that call in. That was that was fun.
5: Hey Ray, this is John from Red Dice Diaries. Just been listening to your episode about why games go funny. And yet for me, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. It's down to people just wanting to relax and chill out. And like you say, not be as guarded after they've maybe finished their work day. They've had a long week and they're like, oh great, it's the weekend. I can finally just like relax, do a bit of role playing, chill out, socialize with my friends, happy days. So like you said, the guard's not up. And this leads on to various humorous associations. And I'm no stranger to it. I mean, Johannes is running a stars without number game for a few of us guys at the minute. And we're always cracking jokes, having a bit of laugh about things. And I know when I was young and a serious GM that it used to annoy me that the game was going off tone. But you know what? Now I'm pretty much fine with it. I think people deserve a chance to relax and just chill out. I mean, everyone's got shit going on in normal life. Why not? Enjoy the episode, dude. Take care.
0: Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate that. Uh, I think you're right. It, you just can't get past this idea that some people are going to be there to relax, and if they are, there's not a lot you're going to be able to do about it, um, or should do about it, honestly. It's, it's cooperative fun. Everybody has to be in it for the same reasons, or roughly the same reasons, uh, or at least um, reasons that work well together. You have to have an agenda that meshes, and I think if you really want to maintain a certain tone, it's you, you have to have that conversation at the outset. If you are maintaining an expectation as a GM or a player that a certain tone is going to be maintained, but you haven't expressed that and you haven't gotten buy-in from other people, then prepare to be disappointed, and uh, rightly so, because you had not done the work that you need to do to um, make sure that everybody wants to establish that tone or even tell people that that's the tone you want to establish. I made a comment recently online, um, you know, that if your PCs keep doing things you don't expect, then stop expecting your PCs to do things. And by that I meant, you know, stop trying to pre-plan other people's fun, stop trying to, to herd them into a particular type of game or a particular story. You know, the more expectations you have, the more unspoken expectations you have of people, the more often you're going to be disappointed. And it, it's if you have an expectation that you really are hoping. F- you know, something you really hope will happen or a tone that you really hope will happen. um, Keeping your mouth shut about it's not the way to make that happen. The way to make that happen is to to discuss it with the players right off and see who else is into the idea. And if everybody's into it, then I think you've got grounds for maintaining a specific tone or a specific type of story. Um, Otherwise, yeah, let it go. It's time to wrap this one up. Thanks, everybody, for calling in. I really appreciate it. Your call-ins help make the show better. And that's a cool thing. I'm Ray Otis signing off, and until next time, look out for those rest monsters.